Hey guys, welcome to the STEMcast podcast. My name is Aditya and I'm joined with Yudhvir and today we're lucky enough to have Dr. Belmer on our show. Thank you for joining us. Let's start off with a brief introduction about yourself. Could you tell us a little bit about your background, your job title, where you work? For sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me here today. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Um, I'm a research scientist at Google Brain in Montreal. Uh, I lead the reinforcement learning uh, team there, and uh, in general, my work my work is about uh, doing research to advance the field of uh, reinforcement learning, which is basically AI learning to do things from trial and error. Well, that's really cool. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about like what you work on on like a day to day basis kind of thing? So, uh, some of the things that you're working on currently, and and what do you hope to accomplish with these kinds of things? Yes. Um, so a lot of our work involves uh, doing what we would call fundamental work, where we're really interested in getting at the heart of how uh, intelligent agents uh, can learn. And so uh, typically what it involves is, uh, is a mix of theoretical work where we'll actually write down some equations to explain uh, learning behavior and a mix of uh, empirical work where we're actually going to program these, uh, these learning rules and then see how they operate in real situations. So a lot of the work that I've been involved in in the past involves video game playing with uh, you know, the Atari uh, 2600 video game console, where effectively, uh, this, is, this dates back to, to, to the early 2010s now, we, uh, we were interested in asking the question, how can we program uh, a system to effectively learn to play uh, console games uh, on its own by trial and error? And effectively, the way to think about this here is to, that the agent will start and knows nothing about the game. It, it receives the screen, it sees the, the screen, and it knows that it can uh, press the button on joystick and move the joystick around. And then it starts and uh, using uh, learning rules from the field of reinforcement learning, then we can actually uh, have the system learn to, uh, to play by itself. So this has been a really successful um, pursuit, uh, really successful research direction. And uh, by now we really well understand very well how to do this, how to, to, to learn from trial and error um, in, uh, in these simulated systems. Um, so that day-to-day -day work continues today and, uh, and, and, and maybe where we would like to get to next is we want to understand uh, what I like to call democratizing reinforcement learning. So instead of uh, requiring somebody who has a lot of expertise to get these systems to work, to be able to be in a place where more people can use the program. So we've seen this with, uh, with deep learning and deep neural networks in recent years, where it's a lot easier for somebody who knows very little about the field to come in and, and do something. Reinforcement learning is not quite there yet, but we're hoping to get there. Um, and this is a mix of computer science work and mathematical work. And uh, I like to think it even goes beyond, you know, beyond the, these classic disciplines. Wow, that's really cool. So the research that you want, uh, the research that you're doing, you basically want to implement it in a way that more people can use it uh, and not just the specific people who, who've been studying this for all their lives, pretty much. What, what are some of the places that maybe you think that this research can be implemented, like in a day-to-day -day use? That's a good question. So I think there's actually already a lot of uh, places where this is being used. I can tell you about um, one, uh, one project that I've been involved in 
So uh, our, the results of this research was actually published in Nature in uh, December, so just, just very recently. And um, this was a bit of a personal challenge for me where it's exactly, I wanted to find out where we were at uh, in our field with respect to how well these methods can be applied to new problems. So we worked with a team called uh, Loom uh, that, uh, that builds balloons uh, to fly in the stratosphere. And so these balloons have to fly about 20 kilometers high in the air. And um, they're, they're real systems. They're, uh, they're something in between a robot and an aircraft. And uh, we were really interested in understanding if we come to a completely new problem, uh, knowing what we know, but knowing fairly little about the system itself, how quickly can we actually get there? Uh, and the answer is, you know, within six to nine months, we had a system that was quite reliable and we were very proud of. Um, and so what we did here is we actually used reinforcement learning um, to learn to fly these balloons, um, basically by again, training them by trial and error uh, through repeated simulations. So to give you a feel for how much data is involved, it takes about 30 days of, of you know, nonstop training to train one of these systems. And during that time, the, the, the learning rule, the learning agent will go through about uh, millions of flights where it just basically tries out flying a balloon in simulation, see what happens, tries out another flight, sees what happens and, and so on. Um, so that's a good example of what we can do. The end result is a controller that is much better at flying these balloons than anything else that, uh, that Loon had built before. And so you talked a little bit about um, like reinforcement, reinforcement learning versus like like deep mind and neural networks. Can you uh, explain like what the difference is between the two and like the difference in kind of like where we are in both of those things? For sure. So the when we talk about deep learning um, or neural networks, typically we think about uh, the classic problem of given some input, give for example an image or a piece of text or maybe a piece of music we want to say something about that input. For example, the classic example in classification would be uh, given an image, tell me if, the, if, it's, if it's a cat or a dog, that's in the image, okay? Um, and uh, and we've, seen, we've, been, we've seen a lot of success in, in that space, uh, whether it's image classification or more recently uh, generating new images, for example, there's been a lot of surprising and, and sometimes disturbing applications of the, of the technology. Um, where reinforcement learning is different is that we bring in decisions. So now the system actually makes decisions. And, and we're really focusing on asking the question, first of all, what are the consequences of making one choice or another? Right? So if you're flying a balloon, what happens if I go left or if I go right? Uh, if I'm playing a game, video game, a Atari video game, you know, what, what if I press fire at this right moment? Is this the right thing to do? So we're interested in understanding the consequences of our actions and also then interested in finding the best way to, to behave, right? If I want to uh, maximize my, 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 my accuracy uh, when I'm flying, for example, that would be a great use for this. So it's a very different paradigm in some sense, but the two both rely on this idea of from data, we want to understand the world better effectively. Yeah, very autonomously in a sense, right? With very little input from like our end. It's just the machine that's doing everything, like all the decision-making. That's right. So that's a good way to put it, which is that classic supervised learning or machine learning uh, will still have a human in, in the loop where the human will uh, 
we'll have to look at the, the outcome of the system and then make a decision in the spaces. And reinforcement learning uh, tries to understand how can we actually learn about the consequences of making some choices. Now, it doesn't mean that we should necessarily have these systems be autonomous, but rather we, under, we try to understand what it would mean for them to make some decisions. So it could be that a system still recommends to a human the best decision. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in health, this is likely to be the case where, where the system will say, I think this is the right course of action, but uh, now it's still up to you to decide what that course of action is. That makes sense. All right, thank you. Uh, can you also talk a little bit about the collaboration aspect of the job? Like what kind of professions you interact with to accomplish your research? For sure. So uh, one thing I love about research, I'm a research scientist and uh, uh, I'm also uh, affiliated with McGill University where, where I work with grad students. And, and what, what I love about research is that uh, there's a real interdisciplinary aspect to all of this work. So uh, the core of my work is in computer science, where we do things that computer scientists do, which is to, to prove uh, properties of algorithms and design new algorithms that are better than the previous algorithms. There's also an engineering component, which involves looking at the systems as a whole. Um, but then beyond that, the, the, there's, uh, I love to interact, for example, with, with psychologists and uh, cognitive neuroscientists and, and, and maybe people, even people from the social sciences and understand how the work we do uh, gets contextualized in a much larger field, you know, what does it mean if I come up with a better algorithm, how will that influence uh, society, for example? Or, uh, you know, if we, if, if us as a research community go down a certain path, what does that mean for the, for the scientific community as a whole? Will there be choices? And, and I think it's great to do this because really as a scientist focusing in computer science, I don't have these answers. So I have to go find these answers somewhere else. Thank you. Uh, also, we are aware that you're Canada CIFARAI chair. Could you explain a little bit about what your role is there and what the organization itself is as well? For sure. So uh, CIFAR stands for the uh, Canadian Institute for uh, Advanced Research. And uh, it's an organism that funds research across Canada and, and is a network effectively of, uh, of researchers. Um, and so the, the, the Canada CIFAR uh, AI chair is... Uh, is a, is a chair, it's, it's funding for doing this research and it's part of a much larger program that's uh, across Canada, uh, across multiple institutes and multiple universities, uh, all coming together to do AI research. Um, and so we have uh, frequent meetings as a group. This, I don't have the exact number here in terms of the number of universities involved, but uh, the three main centers are, uh, are in Montreal, Toronto, and, uh, and based in Edmonton. And, um, this effectively provides us funding to, to pursue these questions in an academic setting. Uh, and this was uh, launched a, a few years ago uh, in part because there was, there was uh, a lot of appetite for looking at more, uh, more recent AI research. Now I should say that CIFAR itself uh, has been funding AI research for much longer than recent years. And so the CCAI uh, chair is a, is it a continuation of this, of this work. Thank you. So um, just going back to a little bit about the research that you're conducting. So you said that you work with a lot, a lot of data just to make uh, these programs and these, these agents work. So what are some of the limitations that we're currently facing in the development of, of reinforcement learning? 
So I think the limitations are at multiple levels. The normal one, the natural one is to, to, to know that the, the field is uh, only partially understands what we're doing, right? Just like any natural science, there's things we don't understand. Uh, but that's sort of obvious and, and maybe that that's what the short-term research is, is trying to get at, is improving the algorithms, making them better, making them more efficient. Uh, for me, the more interesting limitations are at, uh, again, the sort of the social level. And when we come to think about applying these algorithms to uh, to different systems, um, maybe rather than thinking about limitations, I would say it's a challenge to understand what does it mean to deploy a reinforcement learning algorithm fairly or safely or, or, or you know, in a way that can be interpreted by by the public, for example. And I think that's an incredibly important uh, challenge, something we need to think about as uh, as scientists, but also as a society, to uh, to understand how we can, uh, as these systems get more complex, how we can still understand them and understand what they're doing. Um, so, uh, maybe as an analogy, it's very it's very easy when we're looking at the system playing Atari uh, to to be first of all to to be okay with the lack of interpretability. Uh, maybe the same thing, for example, when we look at the AlphaGo project that led to a superhuman uh, Go playing system. And in some sense, we can't tell how it's making its, uh, its moves, but we know that it's playing very good moves and that's sufficient. I think for more, uh, for, for any application that, that touches the human sphere uh, of activity a bit more, then these decisions are going to be uh, scrutinized and we need to understand exactly why they're, they're being done. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, one thing that you mentioned was was the efficiency aspect of, of the algorithm. So like, is there any new and emerging technology that's helping with those kind of things? Or is the technology already there? We're just learning how to use it better to serve the purpose. Uh, so if I understand the question correctly, you're, you're, you're wondering, is, it, um, is everything ready? And now we just need to figure out how to apply it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, not quite. Um, maybe if I can, if I can explain, um, Historically, the, a lot of the work that was done in reinforcement learning uh, took place in um, what I would call fairly abstract systems. And uh, the questions that were being asked were mathematical. What, what are the equations that we need to describe uh, the behavior of a system that's learning from its, uh, from its mistakes? Um, what happened in the early 2010s, in fact, in part spurred by my work on the Atari, was uh, a shift towards systems that uh, can deal with much larger input spaces. For example, a whole image instead of four or five numbers. And uh, a lot of the work that we've seen in the last 10 years has been concentrated on understanding this. What does it mean to then have uh, a camera as input instead of having uh, a handful of numbers? But there's a, still a lot of challenges that we we, we just don't understand how to properly resolve them or even if they're resolvable. Um, and one of the re reason why it's not easy to just answer these, these challenges is because sometimes we don't even have the right mathematical formalism to think about them, okay? Uh, so a lot of the work that we, that we develop, the equations will typically uh, be fairly simple so we can think about them. But they, in fact, uh, they don't completely, they're a model of reality, but they're not reality. And so whenever we want to apply something, we have to, to bridge that gap between the equations and reality. And uh, part of our work, 
uh, at Brain and at McGill is to understand how to bridge that gap. And I think just like uh, any sort of engineering related discipline, part of uh, our work is also when we apply it to understand just for the specific application, how do we bridge that gap? Um, all right, thank you. Uh, I know you previously mentioned that you're prof uh, we're working with McGill University and at McGill University and we're supervising graduate students. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about the role that graduate students play in advancing this field of study? I think graduate students, um, and I guess I want to say the, the academic system as a whole, university system as a whole, plays an incredibly important uh, role in advancing uh, AI research. Um, so maybe we can contra contrast it with, you know, what would we do without graduate students? Where would the research be, be happening? Um, I think the research would ha be happening in uh, industrial labs, um, in, in companies that can fund research. Um, and often that research by, by virtue of being funded uh, inside a company has to have a more uh, short-term impact or more short-term goals, or even just be focused in a specific area of research. What's great, what, I've, what I find fantastic working with graduate students is we can really ask uh, pretty much any question which we think is of relevance and uh, we can see where it leads. So, so that's something that I really appreciate working with graduate students. And uh, you know, I, I like to quote, uh, this is a, a paraphrase of, uh, of a quote by Max Planck that said, you know, science progresses one funeral at a time. Uh, this is a bit grim, but maybe a more, a more uh, bright way to say this is that really graduate students and new generations of researchers uh, bring something new to the table that, um, that is necessary to keep moving science forward, right? They'll come with a new perspective. They'll come with, without a lot of the baggage that, that as, a, as researchers, we start to accumulate as we, uh, as we become more senior. So uh, that's one of the many reasons that it's, uh, it's great to work with graduate students. Wow, that's amazing. So another thing that we wanted to know actually is a little bit more about you and your journey and how you got to where you are today, because your job seems honestly really, really amazing. So we'd definitely like to know how you landed like a job at one of the biggest like technology companies in the world and developing such cool algorithms and, and, and cool machines. For sure. Uh, so uh, as with any journey, I think it, you know, we can go back as far as we want in time. Um, I think for me, I, if, I, if I start with my undergraduate degree, I'm from Quebec City, but I moved to Montreal to do my uh, undergraduate degree at McGill University. And I was really lucky there to, um, to have uh, my first mentor, Dorina Prekop, who is a professor at McGill University, taught me uh, AI. And in fact, that's true for my under, most of my undergraduate teachers, really showed me that there was more to it than, than maybe even what just I had read in the, in, in the books and the papers. Um, and so she set me off on, on my journey to understand what AI research is about. I think that's the right starting point is just even to understand uh, what is actually happening in the field, what do people care about? Uh, and, uh, and then eventually I did my PhD at the University of Alberta uh, where uh, there's an incredible uh, concentration of researchers in AI and in reinforcement learning. Um, and so I braved the uh, the Edmonton cold to do a PhD there, uh, and eventually, uh, eventually, in my PhD, there was a startup in London in the UK that was uh, that was hiring, and that startup was called DeepMind. And so I uh, I wasn't too interested in 
being a professor uh, at the time or, or even doing a postdoc, I think I, I'm a very curious individual who was curious to see what was outside of the academic um, discipline. And so I decided, and I also wanted to uh, to try to live somewhere else. Really, like it's it's that simple. So um, I uh, I I worked. Uh, I, I went for an internship at DeepMind, um, and and that went quite well. And DeepMind was quite interested in the Atari platform, which I had been working on during my PhD. Um, and so it was a match. We uh, we we liked each other, and then and decided to move to London to work for the startup. Um, DeepMind was eventually acquired by Google, and then. Uh, DeepMind is the you know the AI powerhouse that we know today. Uh, eventually, I was uh, keen to come back to Canada, and so I uh, I made the move to uh, Google Brain to um, to do research in Montreal. Um, I think that's the that's the gist of the journey. Um, maybe one thing I can say is I have a bit of a strange uh, strange fact about me is I've actually never done a formal interview. Uh, so I think in some sense I I've managed to to you know how did I land that job. Um, being curious, I suppose, and maybe a bit of luck as well. Wow, you're one of the lucky ones. <laughs> Interviews are scary. <laughs> uh, another thing that we wanted to ask you was, so in your field, you work with a lot of mathematics and, and, and computer programs, but in addition to just those, those technical skills, what, what kind of other skills do you need to be able to excel in this? Like, for example, like personality traits and the challenges that you face, like, what, what kind of things do you need to be able to do in order to excel? That's a great question. So actually, you, you said some challenges, and I want this is one that's uh, that's dear to my heart. Uh, I think communication is incredibly important, and it's often the thing that's the hardest to uh, to teach because what does it mean to teach communication? Right? I, um, I hear that in previous times, they uh, people actually took classes and how to to formulate an argument. I think we still learn some of this with you know, critical writing and critical thinking, but uh, the reason why this matters so much is I think it, being a scientist, we often think it's about building things. That's true, but actually it's about telling other people that you've built these things and being able to tell people. And, and history is, is, you know, is full of uh, scientists that were forgotten or maybe uh, only remembered much later, I think in part maybe because they couldn't communicate well their ideas. There's other factors here too, for, of course. And so for me specifically, um, English is not my first language and, and it's been uh, a challenge to, uh, to learn to communicate in English uh, to the degree that I know I could communicate in French. Um, and so uh, now ironically enough, I think I can communicate better about science in English now that I can in French just because I do it more, um, but certainly it's, it's something that I encourage my graduate students to work on to think, think about what you want to say and then and then how do you say it? And who's your audience? And and how are you going to craft your narrative? And uh, the hardest part here is to do this well, is to have all to contextualize it. You know, nothing is said in a vacuum in some sense. There's always a reason why we say things. All right, thank you. And just lastly, is there any advice you'd like to give high school and undergrad students looking to pursue a career in developing AI, particularly here in Canada? And what kind of suggestions would you give to ways that students can get involved early on? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, my, my journey started in university, even though um, I was curious about AI research or an AI in general, from, you know, from age 12 or age 11 or so. 
Uh, at the time, I think there was not a lot of resources. Um, I think I learned about AI by going to the library. That probably dates me a, a little bit as well. Um, nowadays, there's a lot of online resources and there's a lot of, um, you know, whether it's slightly more formalized, like things like Coursera or, or, or less formalized, like just a video on YouTube. Um, we're really lucky to have all these resources. And I think the challenge is almost to know where to look. And, and that I don't think, I don't have a good answer, but certainly the quality of the information matters just as much as the quantity. Um, now, there's a lot we can learn from. I think the best path forward is always to have, or the easiest path forward is always to find a mentor, somebody who is willing to, uh, to show someone the, the, the path or, or even just answer questions, um, you know. If, if the only learning that someone can do is by reading a book, then the book will not have, will not be able to answer the questions they might have. The book will tell them things. Um, now this said, finding mentors is really difficult. And then sometimes it can be a bit lucky. Like in my case, it was, it was in some sense, I had interest. I was lucky that Miguel had a professor who was interested in exactly the field. I mean, it, luck doesn't even play into it. I do what I do today because I had access to that mentor. Uh, at McGill University. Uh, but maybe the way I would summarize it is to ask the right questions. And often by being able to formulate the right questions, then we can recruit a lot of answers from different people, different resources, right? So sometimes it's good to be broad, but I think to get started, it's good to be narrow and, and ask questions in the right space. Um, maybe one thing I want to add to this is also that in AI today, there are now many careers, and I think research, like being a researcher like I am, is only one of them. Um, it, it, there's, there's, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole, basically not a field, but like a career description that's, that's beginning to emerge, um, which is called, for example, research engineering or, or, or machine learning engineering, which would be about understanding how do I, uh, how do I understand these, these systems, these these tools, but then design, like build systems that actually use the, these equations. Um, data science is also uh, a related field, which is not the same. And so uh, another question maybe to, to, that, that, I would, uh, that I would suggest asking is what, what part of this whole uh, spectrum are you interested in? Is it building things? Is it thinking about things? Is it reading about things? And answering that question, uh, will lead to different career paths, depending on the person. Wow, thank you so much for this interview, sir. This was honestly one of the most, one of the best learning experiences, just learning firsthand from somebody who's, who's so deep into the field. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. So uh, thank you once again for taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule for sitting down and, and chatting with us. And uh, we hope everyone at home enjoyed the podcast as well. Thank you so much. This was a very real pleasure. Have a good day.